So, so God reveals himself in a way that comports with the specific characteristics of reality. So, and what that means is all of the positive and life-affirming qualities of reality are not really qualities of reality. They're actually qualities of God being manifest in reality. So that's like, say, the, the heat in a boiling pot of water is not really the heat of the water. It's really the heat of the fire manifest in the water. Okay? Which means um, this is a way that brings a, this... this means that God is very close, very imminent, because everything you're really experiencing is really just God. Or, and then the bad and painful stuff would be a lack of experiencing God. Okay. That's God fills the world. And then we spoke about how God surrounds or encompasses the world. That means God has a, for lack of words, a power or an ability to, which, which is unlike anything we have a way of conceptualizing or, put, or, or, or understanding which is present in reality, which causes reality to be. It brings reality into being, poof, out of nothing, and perpetuates reality's ongoing existence. And that's something we do not experience, we do not fathom, we do not comprehend. We can understand it only by a process of con contrasting and negation um, and inference. But we can't have any direct sense of what it is and what it is like, because nothing like that exists for us, okay, and that's what we spoke about yesterday. Okay. So those are two different aspects of God's greatness, and now we're ready today to move on to the third. The third is how before whom, in the presence of whom, everything is considered as nothing. Okay. So in the presence of God, everything is considered as nothing. So I will ask you a question. In the presence of God, what's not considered nothing? Nothing. What's not considered nothing? Himself. Or himself. Very good. Very good. When it says in the presence of God, everything is considered nothing, the everything means everything which is not God. Okay? Now, There are many ways of explaining this. We're going to do this, and I think is the, the simplest. Things derive their value um, in all sorts of ways. Right? Some things have more value, some things have greater value, some things have less value. They've at, the rally is derived in all sorts of ways. Right? Now, are there ways that things can lose their value? Okay, so give me an example of something losing its value. What? How does a car lose its value? Nicer cars come out. Okay. Okay, good. So, so what I, remember we had a class a while ago and I spoke about the fact that people use words and if you ask people, what, is it, what do the words mean, people get, something else give you a blank. Okay, so let's, so pretend I don't know anything about a car. I want you to tell me in what sense the car had value and then what happens, how does the car then lose the value and pretend I really don't already know what you're talking about. Yeah. The car was shiny, no paint chips in its perfect as it was the day it was made, were, it was all functioning, functions, functioning appropriately and properly and without glitches. And then once somebody uses the car or owns the car and either puts a scratch in the side and makes it not look so pretty or makes, the, makes it function not as well as it once did, the value of the car is. Okay, so what you're saying is the car has a value because of its aesthetic appeal, and the car is a value as a tool, and over time, the wear and tear on the physical, physical aspects of the car decrease its aesthetic appeal and decrease its functionality, and therefore it loses value. Yeah? That makes sense? Okay. Fine. 
That's nice. There are always other other ways of that things lose their value, other than how the wear and tear on the physical dimension makes them less appealing visually and less functional. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what you mean by technological advance. Like, but I, it's not, I, it, it, the, the battery, the core processor, isn't it? Um, I don't know what an iPhone is. Tell me, like, like um, a cell phone that was made with like a battery. A battery is something that you can charge. Hmm? The battery <laughs> have gotten smaller and smaller, which means it's easier for you to carry it around, mm-hmm. and they're more powerful, so they last longer. You don't have to charge them; they become smaller, so it's less of a toil on you to carry around a chunk. Versus something smaller. Okay, so what you're saying is that things lose their value because your standards get raised. Yeah. Okay, so something could have been, been the highest standard you could expect, but then things can happen to raise the expected standard, and now the same thing is no now at a mediocre or even a minimal or even an unacceptable standard, even though it hasn't changed at all. Yeah. Okay, that's entirely different, right? Yeah. Than, 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 than the idea that the object itself undergoes wear and tear. But yeah, another way that things can lose their value, yes. Explain. If the whole concept of supply and demand, that if the market is flooded with overproduction of things, then you have more, yeah, you have more options, and so they can't, you can't charge the same prices for things, you have to lower the price to deal with competition. Um, so what I want to differentiate is between price and value because while value is an influencer in price, it is not the only influencer in price. In fact, it's one of the more minimal contributions of price. And so what you're saying is how, how the fact that the market is flooded um, means that you lose the ability to demand a higher payment for things. That doesn't actually change the, I mean, it depends on the kind of item it is. Um, so some items, I forgot there's a technical interest in economics where the value of an item is due to its rarity. So there, the more you have, you're actually decreasing the value because what makes the item valuable is that few people have it, so it's a mark of status. So those items really, it is true. Um, if, if something is a rare, like as you use baseball cards, a rare baseball card, is valuable because it's rare. So if you make a lot of them, then it loses its value. Um, but what you're saying is usually has to do with other economic forces other than the value of the item itself. Um, which is, you know, for instance, the fact that people don't want to spend money that they don't have to spend, and competition um, often forces, often incentivizes different sellers to lower their price until it cuts into their profit margins in an unacceptable way. And then that tends to drive prices down um, because consumers can always pick the other option. That doesn't really affect the value of the item, but it does affect the price of the item. Yes. How? Explain, like, what's the value? How does it change in? So there's different ways. So let's say, like, um, you have somebody that you value a lot. Like, you have a good friend with somebody. So you value that friendship. Like, two people are very close. And let's mm-hmm. say they do something, like, I don't know, like, laugh you about something. You lose the value. You lose certain, like, your emotion towards them drops, and that value of that emotion drops. Okay, so... This is going to sound maybe a little bit um, demeaning, but that's basically the same thing as the wear and tear of a car. Because what you're saying is that, and this is not just through the, the normal wear and tear of you, it's not a physical object, but this thing, I value this friendship because of the level of, 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 uh, of trust and dignity and mutual affection and blah, blah, blah. But if you're going to do things that undermine the thing that make the relationship valuable, then it loses its value. Much like if I value my car because it gets me from point A to point B and doesn't do it as well. So, the thing, so what you're saying is that the, the person is no longer exhibiting the valuable traits. That's the same kind of thing, just in a 
on an interpersonal level. I value you for A, and you, you display less A, so I value you less. Same thing, I value the car because it looks nice and gets me from point A to point B. If it does that less, I value it less. It's more complex, um, but it's not the same thing. The thing that makes it valuable, the thing that's making it valuable has, has gone away. In this case, you know, through the person's choices, the way you're describing it. Yeah? Um, Okay, but let's think about it. What you're saying is what's value, what you value is things that are associated with famous people. And as long as it's associated with famous people, it's valuable. But when it's longer associated, it's not valuable. So it's really the same thing. It's just lost the property that made it valuable. In other words, what's valuable about it is associated with famous people. The longer, you know, however long it takes for it to be no longer associated with famous people, then... Okay, yeah. So it's derived value based on association. You lose that association. Okay. Yes. I'm going to, because this is not a class on, on value, I'm going to now cut this short and point out a commonality in all the things, is that everyone's talking about something that happens to the object. What if I just stop caring about the thing that made it valuable? It could, it could nothing has to happen to it. Maybe I just don't care about that anymore. Oh! No, no, no. Because in the iPhone, I still care about it. I just have a higher standard. I, I still care about... I still care about compactness. I care about battery life. It's just now, r- relatively, there's a better one. What if, what if for instance, okay, um, the thing that I used to value, just that itself ceases to be important to me. I just don't care about it. For instance, okay, um, Let's say you are looking for a spouse. Okay. What is something that a person might consider to be a valuable thing in looking for a spouse? Kindness. Kindness. They also want to get married. Do they? <laughs> Kindness, they also want to get married. I'm going to pick one. I'm going I'm go- I'm what? How many kids they want? I'm going to pick something which is quite common. What? No, 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 no. This is this is this is this is a quite common thing. Um, most people like have kind of a plan of like what they want to do over the next two, three, four, five, ten years, whatever it is. Does their plan fit nicely into my plan? Yeah. That's like a very important thing that people are, you know, like. I, like I envision my, I want to do this and I want to do that and I want to live here and I want to do this and then the other person, well, is the way they see, you know, how their next few years of life developing compatible with that or not compatible with that. Yeah, like, I want to go be, you know, an archaeologist in the Indus Valley um, and they want, and they want to live in the inner, they want to live in the first ring of suburbs of Indianapolis um, working as an accountant. Right? That's our, that's our visions of the next 
for the, what we want in the next five to ten years of our lives. Think that marriage is going to work out well? No. no. Okay. What? No. Okay. Now, now let's fast forward. And that, that would we all say like that's a pretty that that has a pretty significant thing when you're trying to evaluate is this person like you know the person I should marry or not? Yes. Okay. Now, let's fast forward ten years into the marriage, and now say, is that an important what what, what you thought your life plan was going to be and what you're focusing on, how you wanted your life to develop? Is that now an important thing? Looking back ten years, why not? No, what, in other words, what, if you survive 10 years of marriage, okay, and let's assume that the marriage is not just you're technically still married, but like you actually went through 10 years of marriage ago, so now you're, okay, the marriage is a good marriage, and is it now really relevant how closely or not all closely aligned your supposed visions of your life were when you were dating? Why? Because, like, if, let's say I want, when I was dating, I want this and this, but later in my life, it changes, and I'm like, you know what, just kidding, I want to be a seed agro like Florida, and this person says, no, I still want what I wanted when we first started, then like, you're going to be unhappy, because you want you want to change, or if you have to really compromise. No. Or you just haven't been married for 10 years. Huh? You haven't been married for 10 years. Oh, there's that. There's that. <laughs> What, what, what changes after being married for 10 years? I'm just using 10 years as a nice big number, but it, you could throw in, you know, it could, be, it could be, it could be five, although that's probably too small, and it could be 15. What? That's very romantic. <laughs> the other long married person in the room is like, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> No, not necessarily. I mean, there was a time. There was a time when Jews could live in Portugal, not in Spain. You know, it was a short-lived time, but there was such a time. Yes. What? Okay, now that's the moving beyond yeah, direction. In other words, it, it, it becomes more that you have a joint life. You're not on the same page. You don't really seem to want the same things. And there's still plenty of conflicts. But now it's not a... Now it's, you know, and then again, this is if you actually go through 10 years of marriage, of actually building a marriage, right? Not 10 years of you're like technically like just compromising all the time. But what ends up... You know, let, me, let, me, let me put you through it. Sometimes you're hungry. Yeah, happens. Okay. Um... Sometimes you have things to do and you don't have time to eat. Mm. And so there's this conflict. Should I take time to go eat or should I go do these other things I have to do, right? right? So you can have conflicts about like, things that have to do with just you. So there's this idea of building a mutual life together. When you're building a mutual life together, it means all the conflicts go away. It means, all of, it means now you're all, all moving in the same direction. It means that it means that all of the issues are joint issues. Yeah, so, so it means the di- people's different personalities and different issues around, they're, 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 they're both people's problems, they're both people's successes, they're both people's issues. And what, therefore, the idea of trying to like, okay, you know, do, are we a match? Like, is your plan match my plan? Like, that's not the issue. It's a different issue. It's a very different issue. The issue is, the issue is now much more analogous um, to, to, to not looking for compatibility, but looking for um, solutions. Like, the fact is, I want, I want this, and you want that, and now the question is, how can we make both of those things work? 
But that question, how can we make both of these things work, presupposes that like, it's a mutual life. And that takes time to build, that sense. And, and, and that, what that means is that this looking, is, am I compatible with this person, is what I, my vision for life and their vision for life, is that looking for that compatibility is no longer the thing. Now, the honest truth is, and this is why I'm bringing this one up as an example, many people actually don't make that switch. And so 10 years later into their marriage, they're still thinking, did I marry the right person? Are we really compatible? In other words, they, they halachically, they went to the chuppah, they dated, and, and, but, but they've spent the next 10 years doing what? Oh, living their own lives and then deciding, are our lives compatible? See, what's actually supposed to happen in a marriage, and if you're working in a marriage, it, is that the, the nature of the issues changes from being an issue, am I compatible with you, are you compatible with me, to what are issues and how do we solve them? What are issues and how do we solve them? And you do that for 10 years, at a certain point, like what you intended, what, like that's just, you don't think that way anymore. You still have lots of problems and you still could be pulling in very different directions and there can be huge conflicts. But it's a different kind of a thing. And so this idea of, of this, uh, this idea of evaluating compatibility is no longer something that you are valuing anymore. You're not looking for compatibility. It's like a non-issue. Now, that again, that takes that takes a, working in a relationship to ch- make that shift. So there is a the thing you're looking for before you marry somebody is are we compatible? And then being married is you're shifting to the point that, like, I don't value compatibility. I value working through our problems together. And if we're working through our problems that are great, and if we're not, then let's figure out how to do that. Like, I don't care what the, like, there could be really big problems. Maybe, like, 15 years down the line, you discover that one of you has a midlife crisis, and all of a sudden doesn't value and care about the things that you thought, and they've been, okay, well, that's a pretty big problem. We're going to have to work through that. What, what about Compatibility. Compatibility, schmatability, that's not the issue here. Like that, the, the issue is like, we have this life and we have this issue, so we need to figure out how to deal with it. So the whole way of valuing has shifted. That's actually very hard to do. Um, and this is why I bring this example, if you're before that. And it's really hard to do if you insist on staying in, in the original mindset. Okay? Um, there's an element, now, so that's a forward-looking one. I'm giving you an example of a backward-looking one, okay? Um, and I'll give you two. One that may not apply to some of you. But you remember that there were things that were really important to you when you were, like, um, in high school in terms of, like, popularity and, what, and um, social standing and all sorts of, like, things of the high, drama of high school politics? At a certain point as you move on through life, hopefully what happens? No that goes away. You're just like, they don't care. Like, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Now, some people do try, try and recreate that in the workplace. <laughs> and then everyone's looking at them going, are you still in high school? Like, okay. And then one that I think applies to most of us, not hopefully all of us. Um, do you remember um, when... Um, the taste of food correlated with um, whether your friends liked it or not. If all of your friends like a certain food when you're a kid, or like that it's a popular candy, then everyone really likes you. Don't know this? Okay. So, when you have little kids, you start to know this. Like, like food, food tastes good. Apparently, comes in waves based on like you know, a lot of children. This happens. Mm-hmm. Like there's a there's a there's a candy that everyone is into and it tastes really good. I know that's the weird thing about kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. Goes back to the, you know, a lot of kids, they, they, they like the food that everyone likes, and when everyone doesn't like it anymore. Yeah, they, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, 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 you know, you know, you, you, can, you can use being part of the, part of, being in part of the group of liking, liking the food. Mm-hmm. This is why, by the way, this took me a long time to figure out, I have, one of my kids has a, a classmate who's really gluten intolerant, and so not allowed to bring anything, uh, anything with gluten other than their sandwiches. They can't bring like, pretzels and things. 
And I was trying to figure out, like, why not? So, like, like, it's not like a death allergy that if there's, like, some spare, like, crumb. I mean, you can bring a sandwich, right? And at some point, like, it clicked to me, which is like this. As a general rule, the kids don't go around sharing their sandwiches. But there's this thing, like, the snack food that you bring in lunch is, like, it's, it's a thing. And, like, everybody's supposed to enjoy all the snack food together. And the kids are busy sharing the snack food with each other. And to expect that, like, if, if you're not... Like we're all supposed to enjoy the same, and then and when one kid brings a snack food and they're really into it, then all the other kids become into it, and when, and so to bring a snack food and not let one kid partake of the snack foods is socially isolating them. But like as an adult, you don't think of food that like okay, so like, so what? But like when you're five, that really is a thing. If one kid can't have pretzels, and then all the kids. What do they do? Like pretzels, and they're all into this kind of pretzel, and then this kid can't have, and they just feel it's like isolated. It's an aspect of kashrut. There's a kashrut aspect, but the, 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 the kids, place where I send my kids to school, um, fortunately, the kashrut is not really an issue. I'm saying for adults. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the, so so the, there, yeah, there's an element to this of, of not being able to share food at all. But like literally the food grinds and my kids will come home like, this kid is there's this new like, kind of shape of the range of shapes of pretzels sometimes. Like that shape of pretzels, they're not into that anymore. They come in waves. And like, like, what? It's a pretzel. Like, who cares? Yeah. Yeah, but that's a that, that's a different thing. I don't. What I'm saying is that the fact that like like the appeal of the the food actually comes in like. The, the, there's, a, there's another element which is, there's another element which is that we use food to bond with each other and so there's that social element anyway if you're if the, if the point that you're using the place you're coming from and valuing things radically changes then things lose their value okay um, and I'll use one more example um take the richest person in the world and they have a loved one who has a disease to which there's no cure what happens to the money that they value? Because now all of a sudden that money can't buy the thing that they won't want. Okay. So here's what, what, what the Tanya is saying. If, if you were to really appreciate God, what would happen to the standard that you use to value things? It would change. And so what would happen to all the stuff that you used to value? It would go away. Its value would get lost. Now, and this is what's very important about this is, this means even the previous things that you valued about God. Because in the last few classes we spoke about how God fills our reality and surrounds reality. And we spoke about what God does in creating the world and in giving us life. What? Those things are valuable because what are you starting as the, prem as the thing that you value? You value your own existence. And because God plays a pretty important role in your own existence, by therefore you also value God. This is saying something very different. That if you were to appreciate God on his terms, nothing else would have value, including your own existence. And therefore, would you value God? Would you care about God because he gives you life? No. You wouldn't. Okay? If, if you could appreciate what, if you could appreciate God's greatness, God's greatness on his terms, on his own terms, then, and, then, and everything else therefore loses value in comparison, what, one of the things that loses value is your own life, your own existence. And if your own life and your own existence lose value, then the value that you had for God because he plays such an important role in giving you life and existence would also, also be meaningless. In other words, what makes God great? He gives us life. He created the world. But if, the wor if, if your life and the world are themselves not valuable to you, then the fact that he creates us and gives us life is also not valuable. I only care about those things because I care about my life. I care about my existence. And what this is saying is that 
The real truth of God's greatness is that, is that once you appreciate it, everything else, including everything else, including your own life and existence, loses value. Yeah. Can it become valuable? You were saying that if one values Hashem on its own terms, then everything else is valued in one's own existence. Mm hmm. Maybe. Meaning if God put us here, we assume it's for a reason. So Can this there be an orientation of acknowledging that we, you know, recognizing God's grace and God's own terms and then that doesn't mean that we have no value but our value becomes like Possibly, but I'm not but possibly, but I'm not going to give you the uh, the the comfort of saying yes. Because the answer, because the because the answer, the answer to the answer to that is that's actually the 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 the, the point here is that this is one of the this is I'm going to mention this a few times. This is one of those places where Hasidus say diverges from just generic um, Judaism. One of the things that generic Judaism takes as just a given is that we exist and our life has some sort of like value to it and then that is understood within the context of God creating the world and giving us life and purpose and blah, blah, blah. And what this is saying, well, actually there is a, a higher truth to all of this that, and if you were to become really aware of that and grasp it and reflect it and ponder it, the thing that would, you would realize is that whether you exist or not is fundamentally irrelevant. Not because of anything bad about you, just because you're not God. And what it is to be God is something so deep and so profound that nothing else can retain its value in presence of that, in light of that. Mm -hmm. And so the very idea of speaking about life and existence and creation and meaning and purpose, those things just dissolve away. It doesn't. It doesn't. This negates those other. These, this negates those other two things. That's why when we first introduced this, the fact that God fills the world and surrounds the world, um, are those are those are compatible. The fact that before God all is nothing is incompatible with those two. And that, in other words, the, 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 those the, the, the fact that God fills and surrounds the worlds themselves become meaningless when you when you when you, when you, when, you, when you talk about this third idea. So this is this they is. Can't be irrelevant. Why not? Okay. Well, can there are things that matter on one level of your life and on a deeper level don't matter. So the same thing with God. On some level, God is the creator of the world, and His presence in the world really matters. And on some deeper level, the truth of His being is such that whether there is or isn't a world is immaterial. That the 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 substance and significance and the depth of the being of God renders all other modes of existence utterly meaningless in comparison. And therefore the fact that God can create those other modes of existence and permeate them and be present in them is also equally meaningless. Yeah, and once you reach that state, like, why go on living? Yeah, true. What's the point? What's the point of maintaining, what's the point of maintaining your own existence? Also a good question. Like, why would anybody want that? This goes back to the fact that the godly soul is fundamentally interested in God. And if there's a truth to God, the godly soul wants to be aware of it. And, 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 and so this, this you know, in, in a person, the analog this is to realize that on some fundamental level, whether you exist or not, on some deep sense, is immaterial to the other person's life, regardless of how close you are to them. That on some level, their life can be a well, life well lived without you. And if you can't recognize that in someone else, on some level, you're only seeing them superficially. 
And that's true about your spouse, and it's true about your children, it's true about your parents. And now, does that mean that on no level, on no level <laughs> your presence matters? It doesn't mean that. But it does mean there is some deep fundamental level that if you were absent, they could still live a life that is a well-lived and worthy life. It does, their, that their value really doesn't depend or isn't defined in terms of their relationship with you. And with a person, that's true to a degree. With God, it's absolutely true. If God never created anything, his, his being would be just as significant and just as meaningful and just as profound as, as, if he, as is when he did create. So on that level, we exist, we don't exist, we have purpose, we don't have purpose. That, that's not the point. And the fact that he, his, he has a power to create reality, so what? He permeates our existence, so what? That doesn't matter. And to, to even enter into that kind of his brainness, that kind of a thought process, means that you're no longer seeing God as a part of an, playing a role in your reality. This is the idea of relationship to the world. You're trying to have a sense of God's greatness vis-a-vis himself on his own terms. And that does have some very serious consequences, you know, what that, what that implies. Yes? Going back to the marriage thing, yeah. I think you said something about how it's difficult for most people to anticipate the possibility of change of value to mm-hmm. what you value. But is that what you meant? Or did you mean that it's hard to make decisions based on the possibility of that change? No, I mean, it's hard to realize that you could change value. Why it's is ver- that hard? Like, why? Why is that hard? I mean, that just gets into, like, just the, for today's class, that's just how people are. It's very hard to imagine that in 10 years you'll be a very different person, that you might value things very differently, and that the things that really, really matter to you deeply might lose all relevance. Yeah, that's very hard to see that. It just seems kind of illogical, because things change all the time. Well, you know, we're not necessarily known for being the most rational of beings, are we? Okay, so, now. May I ask another question? You can. (laughs) So, this is kind of what you were saying, but if God, if if everything exists because God has created it that way, and he wants it to exist, Mm -hmm. he's a part of everything, Mm -hmm. doesn't he, and he values himself, doesn't he value, like, how can everything be nothing except for him if he's in everything? Well, because the problem here is that, that we treat God with the sophistication that we treat like a stone. Well, the stone is here or it isn't here. But God, no, there should be nuance. For instance, you know one of my favorite activities is? Cleaning toilets. And I mean that sarcastically. I despise cleaning toilets. It's disgusting. Okay. You know what's worse than cleaning toilets, though? No. What's worse than cleaning toilets is opening up the septic tank and climbing inside to clean it out because it's clogged and you can't get a plumber. That's much worse than cleaning dirty toilets. You know what's worse than climbing in a septic tank, though? No. Not having worked in toilets. So, if my choice is not having working toilets or cooling and climbing in the septic tank, which one am I doing? Now, do you think what, while I'm there, I'm really there? I mean, is it, that's true. Physically, I'm there. Mentally. Like, am I doing one of those, like, am I doing one of those, like, be in the moment things? <laughs> or am I doing one of those disassociate from your body things. Which one am I doing while I'm there? That's right. As much as possible while still being able to like clean out the septic tank because of the clog because there is a toy truck this big stuck in one of the pipes. This is a true story. Two years ago, my family came. We, had a, we made a bris on Sukkot, Cholomoy. The toilet's all clogged back up and try to get a plumber on Cholomoy and Sukkot um, in, in Beitar. Um, where everyone is ultra-Orthodox, 
not happening. And so Aldi, after the usual, use a plunger, stick stuff down the toilet, open the pipes, you realize that you've got to, you know, do it the hard way. Yeah, a lot of disassociating. Um, usually on the ground outside the house. If the thing, climb down in, stick hands in pipes. It was disgusting. Right? And not like, you know, it wasn't one of those like, be in the moment, feel what your hand is feeling. Right? That's not where it was. So was I there? Was I not there? Right. But like, like I wasn't there? Like I was somewhere else? See, right? Beings have nuance. They have degrees. So, is Hashem everywhere? Sure, because it's His power that creates reality. It's His goodness that fills reality. But now here's the question. How much of Him is in His power and in His goodness? Yes, I am. And the answer is, for Hashem, it's like a septic tank. Yes. It's a good question. It's a really good question. I put myself in the septic tank also. But here's the thing. How much of myself did I put in there? How much of myself... How much, that's not the point. How much of myself... And it is an interesting question. It's not for right now. How much of myself did I put my... I put my body, which frankly is just a bunch of, you know, flesh and bones, so who cares? And as much of my awareness as is necessary to do the act that was needed to be done cleaning it out and then beyond that the rest of myself yeah. tried to be that's a pretty horrible way to think about Hashem as well though. but that's the truth mm-hmm. but, but nothing yeah, yeah yeah how much of Hashem how much of himself is in the power of creating reality how much of himself is in the goodness that fills reality and the answer is as far as Hashem is concerned, zero. That captures none of what he really is. That's, that isn't me. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not like not me. It's not somebody else. It's not like, you know, some, it's not like he... Less. Less. The, the, the sages in the Medrash use the example of pronouncing the letter hey. Do you know how you pronounce the letter hey? You exhale. How much of yourself is present in the act of exhaling? No, no, your, your sense of, you know, the self and what you value in life nothing. and nothing. I mean, it is, it, is, it is an act of you. It is using your power to exhale. That's true. It's yours. It's not like some other entity. But it's, but it's, but it's, but it's, but it's, but it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a meaningless aspect to you. I mean, the trees think it's pretty cool because they get more carbon dioxide that way. So, you know, the trees are like, oh, look at all these carbon dioxide producers. <laughs> but those are, that's the tree's point of view. That's not your point of view. It's like, God, your goodness fills the world. Your infinite creative ability, which transcends all human capacity for understanding, is present in everything. You're amazing. And you know what God says? What? What? What are you talking about? So why do we think Hashem? That's a, such a good question. But I'll just tell you that, the, that our sages say the place where you find Hashem's greatness, you're really finding his humility. What you think is so amazing about Hashem is something that he finds about himself to be utterly insignificant. That's what this is saying. The most transcendent thing that we can fathom about God, if you can say fathom is the right word, is his ability to create reality from nothing. As as far as God's concerned, it happens to be true. But like that's not that's not what makes him who who or what he is. That's not where he derives his value of his being. That's not what gives him his substance. And what does what does give him his substance is something that's so much far beyond that that that's meaningless in comparison. It's a good question. In other words, I'm not. You realize why I'm, you want to know why I'm not answering you, is because part of what this is, what of this is, is is meant to do, is meant to create tension. Yeah, the idea that Hashem is just like buddy buddies, my my life, and Hashem is there walking alongside me, that's nice, but that's not what we're getting at here. Is there room for that? Sure. I mean, after all, the first Zbainus was how He fills the world, right? There were three. 
how he fills the world, how he surrounds the world, and how in his presence all is. Now, remember what I said about necessity of going in order? If you start out with this idea, how do you feel about God? You don't want to right. But if you first, you have this, oh, you, you, this appreciation that all the goodness in life is really his goodness. So fundamentally, your groundwork from then on is that God is fundamentally appealing and good. And then you build from there. Right? These, these things have to go in order. You cannot start with God surrounds the world, then you get abstract philosophy. You certainly can't start out with, in God's presence, everything else is meaningless, because then God just sounds irrelevant. It goes, first he fills the world, then he surrounds the world, then his presence. Right? And that's what we spoke about even with human relation. First you find points of commonality. Only then you can start to build a relationship with an appreciation of difference. Yeah. That was a true story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you were the okay, if you were the only person who used the bathroom in your house, then it wouldn't be as gross as well. Because it wouldn't. Good question, Esther. I would just like to point out. It just wouldn't. Like, when your baby throws up on you, it's not gross. If someone else's baby throws up on you, it's gross. No, it's not as gross. I'm just. I'm just. This is, you're speaking that. Yeah. Everything in this world loves a girlfriend to be down there. He is the only he knows Well, that, and I'm just wondering why you're so convinced that when your own baby throws up on you, it's not gross. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't, I'll just chalk that up to, you know, not everything has to be a perfect parallel. What? Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. That's like your boogers, your boogers, boogers, your boogers. Exactly. We don't even go through the details. Everything I had in mind. To quote from later on in Tanya, this world with all of its contents is the world of Klip and Sistrach, therefore all mundane affairs are severe and evil and wicked men prevail. Do you, so that, I mean, if you want to go there, I'll just point out like this, yeah? How do you know, how do you know, how do you know, how do you know that I am a person who takes my sense of, my sense of autonomy, agency, responsibility, um, you know, how do you know that I'm a, I'm my own person? Because when my house, my septic tank, is clogged up, and there's no plumber, what do I do? I myself go down and clean it. Yeah? And then when I come out, everyone in my family looks at me with tremendous admiration because, what a man! Of course, they don't want to come close to me because it's disgusting. The, the idea that the essence is revealed in the lowest things means, is because the lowest things are disgusting. Look, there's so much more chassidus to learn. There's so much more chassidus to learn. We can't, we can't do it all in one day. Yeah, we're talking about the world. Not the reality of the world. That too. Yeah. The world is nothing other than when God creates. It has no, no, no. It doesn't get any input from anywhere else. So whatever God puts into it, that's what it is. If He puts what's utterly meaningless into it, then as far as He's concerned, the world is. Well, that's the thing. He doesn't put himself into it. 
That's right. This gets back to the thing. Hashem is not a rock. A rock has two modes. It's here or not here. God is more like a more God is more like a mind, and a mind has more than two modes, right? You can be there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the altar is gonna get quite elaborate and sophisticated talking about later about this. Yeah. Yes. Well, because you're acknowledging being creator to being a parent, and it's much more like, it's much more like, um, the cockroaches in the septic tank, they derive a tremendous amount of nourishment from what you put into the septic tank. And in their, and, and, if, and in their worldview, you are the great provider of what's in the septic tank, but would that be how you view yourself? No, but, sorry, but, it's more like that. We speak about like the ability to create life. We speak a lot about that paralleling Hashem and creation. And there's like a whole idea of um, of, of like to Uma after childbirth being related to like you like reach this high point of creation, like paralleling God, and now you're like not in that point anymore. I mean, there's a lot of Jewish ideas around. But but here here's the thing. Once you have three levels of which God relates to the world then you have to contextualize each idea into one of the three, right? Okay. So there are many things which are true about Hashem, provided that you're talking about how He fills the world or He surrounds the world, but are no longer, right, this is the idea. What's true on one level is not true on another level. This is, this is, let me put it to you this way. One of the, one of the difficulties with Chabad Chassidus is that and I mean, this is true about actually Chassidus in general in, its, in all of its earlier forms, but Chabad Chassidus, because it tries to explain things, it just rubs this in your face. God is not there for you. Chabad says it is? No, he's not. He's not there for you. I mean, the reason God's resonance is not so that you can have a creator and that you can have, like, that's not what makes God God. And therefore, the, as long as you continue to relate to God as the creator and the source of life and the source of morality and the source of stability in your life, the provider of all the things you need and blah, 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 on some deep level, you're not really relating to God. You're relating to, yeah, you're relating to yourself. Now, it is true that obviously God does all things and provides all these things, and on some level God values that, and on some level you can have a relationship with God, and those are these first two levels, but those are superficial. And, and yeah, you, ha- you can't have a deep relationship unless you go through a superficial relationship first. That's true, but it's superficial. And that, that the, the idea of, of thrusting that out in the open and saying at the end of the day, God is not... This is the being God is not cannot be reduced to or even understood in terms of being the creator of reality and being the source of good. These are these are just these are these are things which happen to be accurate descriptions of God and completely misleading because they fail to capture the substance of His being. And to, and to thrust that into a person's consciousness and say, "Now make this part of your relating to God," that's a I would say that's a challenging thing to deal with. And it's, by the way, specifically that aspect of this whole thing that the godly soul is critical for. Because without the godly soul, like, this is a point where you get off the train. Like, why would I, like, if God is so, so, so on his own terms, like, what, so what, why, why would I care about that? Well, yes? Um, the septic tank is a something, and if in relationship to God, everything is nothing, and this is well, the, the, the considered as nothing, and the considered as nothing in terms of value and worth, not in terms of non-existence. After all, he did create a world. It's possible, right? Gracious, by the chemist, my base arts. 
That's not. What, it doesn't mean that the world doesn't exist. Like there's no such thing as a world. It means the world has no value because the creative power has no value because the creative power isn't what makes him him. Yeah. <laughs> the points of reference in this class are quite interesting. Right, well, I'm talking, I'm talking, right, so this is, this, the, the issue is that when you're, the issue is that, that you can't put everything into one part of the picture. Okay. Okay, there's just, like, if, if, we, if, if, we, if, we, if we look at this, if we look at this rationally for half a second, just ask yourself anything. If God never did anything, yeah, okay. he never created a world, yeah, would that in any way detract from his being in any way from the from the value of of what it is to be God. I'm not asking. No, it's without the to us, that's the thing. Without the to us, objectively, would it detract? No. Okay. So then that means on some fundamental level, his power to create and his power to enliven, his power to permeate the world with goodness is all on some basic fundamental level that makes us very uncomfortable. Valueless. Does that mean there isn't a level in which God comes down and embraces those things of the importance of creating? Sure, I mean, after all, he did it, right? So that means, yes, it's a multifaceted, multi-layered relationship. There's complexity here. And not everything is true on all levels. So on some level, he wants a relationship with us, and on some level, he really couldn't care less? That would seem to be the case. Now, as we'll learn more, it gets more complicated, because if it's not complicated enough. But we're, if we're just talking, so what makes God great? What makes God great is all the good stuff in the world is really him. What makes God great is that there, he has a power to create reality which is beyond our ability to fathom. And what truly makes God great is that God's value is, 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 is such that nothing else has any value in comparison, including his power to create a world, including our reality. The septic tank has a lot of importance because yet two years later. Yeah, but the septic tank. Yeah, I realize that. I realize that, but 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 the septic tank. The septic tank is 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 to illustrate the point of the complexity of being and not being as not a binary. That was the only reason I brought up the septic tank analogy, and that just because you're present doesn't mean you're totally present, and we shouldn't treat God as something as simplistic as a rock. If I can be afforded the appreciation that I can be in a place and in some sense not be in that place then certainly that's true of God. That something can hold value on one level and not hold value on another level, that should we afford that, that, that richness of being to God. That's all. I mentioned later on, it does say the world is a disgusting place, but that, to understand that, we'll have to get to that later. Yeah. So, okay. so if there's no world... There is a world. Right, like, Has no value. Oh, if you didn't, yeah, like, hypothetical. Yeah. How, oh, so that's the thing. Is you are comparing him. What you're comparing him to is that he could create a world, and whether he does or doesn't doesn't matter. You're still comparing him. In other words, you're right. This, this is greatness still involves comparison. I'm saying, what I'm saying is this: God with a world, God without a world. On some fundamental level, that doesn't really matter. So one way of saying the greatness of one thing is showing the irrelevance of something else. That's a method of comparison. How valuable is life? Well, one way of showing how valuable life is to say that no amount of money has value in comparison to life. Money loses value when life is the issue. So the valuelessness of one thing shows on the greatness of another thing. But that, you're right, that is still a comparison. But God by himself is just God. That's right. Yeah. So that we're, that's, we're, we're not talking about God by himself. We're talking about God's greatness. And one of the things that makes God great on some very deep level is that God's 
val- the value, the significance of his being renders what the significance of the world and the power of God to create the world insignificant in comparison. You're right. The only way to even talk about that is if he's created a world. Because if he hasn't created a world at all, you, or at least you have to entertain the concept of creating a world, right? If you're just talking about God in essence, then, then yeah. God in essence, then the idea of greatness is irrelevant, 100%. Right? This is not talking about God in essence. This is talking about God's greatness. But the deepest form of greatness is to say the value, the significance, the, 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 the substantive depth of, of what it is to be God if you can appreciate what that is, it renders the value in all other things, including God's own creative power, it renders those things meaningless. But that is for sure a comparison. Yeah. Does God also think of the higher three worlds as septic tanks? It depends what you mean by septic tanks. If you mean as disgusting or as, or as, or as, or as, um, places that he's this is, or places that he's not fully present. This, does he keep them at the same arm's length as he does this world? Yes and no, and I don't want to get more into that because that we'll discuss later in time. Okay. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. And I want you to give me three different answers. Okay? One answer based on the fact that God fills the world, another answer based on the fact that God surrounds the world, and another answer based on the fact that before God, everything is nothing. If I want a happy life, what should I do? Okay, which answer is that? God fills the world? That's God fills the world. Okay, what if I want a happy life and I want an answer based on the fact that God surrounds the world? What should I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone else wanted to answer. Yeah. Give yeah, that goes back to the first answer. I wonder how God surrounds the world. What? Learn to appreciate. Yeah, learn to learn. What? Learn to appreciate that God's presence is not correlated to whether or not I can perceive Him or not. Well, because. And that God surrounds the world means that just his presence is not, is, doesn't comport with, with the way the world is, right? The, in, the infinite power to, of God to create is present in everything equally. So, so then, the, that's right. Oh, it means I have to now redefine. So then I'm getting my happiness in a very different way. I'm getting my happiness not... See, in the first way, I have to look for God. I have to look for, th- look for things in, in reality. I have to change. I have to make, find. Th- I, have to, I, have to, I have to make reality more conducive to God. And this, after all, is just the very presence of reality means that God is present here and somehow derive joy in that. Yeah, you want to hear a big difference between the two? Can you live a joyous life while you're being tortured? In, in, in the second one, for sure. In the first one, it, in the first one it's very tricky because what do you have to do? You have to reframe where is the positive element in the torture. In the second one, like, the torture is irrelevant. You transcend that. Okay, what if you want to live a happy and joyous life in the third? Forget God. That relative to God, everything is you know, meaningless. No. Give up. See God in everything. No. See God everything is the first thing. Isn't it never see God? Be willing. No. See, this one's tricky. Is being willing to willing. If if relative to God everything is valueless, right? Then that means I can't, and I want to live a joyous life in light of this fact, taking this fact into account, right? What? 
Right, then the, as long as I'm valuing anything else, that will prevent me from... Like, it... it, it, it You're valuing happiness. Oh, that's right. Which means at this point, I have, and I have to let go of the pursuit of my own joy. That's, that's very, you know, that's like transcending transcendence. It's a very different kind of thing. Okay? So what I want you to appreciate is that these are... So in the torture example... In the torture example, it, 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 uh, oh, or let me put it to you this way. In, in, the, the, in this one, you, you, involves more of a letting go of caring about anything. In a certain sense, you all, in a certain sense, it's almost is almost um, God can no longer be a means to an end for you. Like, is God the, God cannot be a relation with God can't be the means to living a joyous life because then then you'll never you can't you can't you can't relate to God that way. You you could have joy, but the joy isn't something that you're pursuing. It's just something that's a, ensuing. It's a byproduct. Now, what does that mean and how does that work? I mean, Valter is going to want to build on this, but this idea that, that before God, everything is nothing, this is, this is something that, that, that it challenges the human, the human psyche. It shakes it. But what we're going to learn starting tomorrow is what does it do to your godly soul, not what does it do to your human or animal soul. Okay. What happens to your godly soul when you really ponder these three things? Um, the cool stuff happens. Okay. Yes. What's your favorite? What? In the third one? In the third one, you, if you're trying.